Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give. And there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Louise Makshari of Catch Up with Louise Makshari. I could not be more thrilled to be telling you about the return of The White Lotus. It's streaming now with a Now Entertainment membership. I loved everything about the first series of the show, from the cast to the music. And it is just the perfect blend of mystery, comedy and drama. In, in my opinion, the finale of the last series was nothing short of a masterpiece. And now in season two, they're bringing us to Italy. Jennifer Coolidge is back and thank God for that. And this time she's joined by a new cast of characters. If you missed season one, I can't encourage you enough to catch up. You won't regret it. It's streaming now with a Now Entertainment membership. And you can stream the new season of the Emmy Award winning The White Lotus weekly on Now. Welcome to On the Ball with Rick Buecher. Here's your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buecher. Rick Buecher. This is On the Ball on the United Wecast Network, and I am Rick Buecher. You can see me on FS1, hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can read me by ordering the memoir of Brian Grant and his battle with young-onset Parkinson's called Rebound. If you know someone with Parkinson's or you know nothing about Parkinson's, you will want to read Brian's story. Order your copy on Amazon or visit your favorite brick-and-mortar bookstore to grab one. Are you a Kindle reader? Audiobook listener? We've got those versions as well. Support Brian's foundation, which supports those afflicted with Parkinson's, and pick up your copy today. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram, at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places. But there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA. And that is here. Before I get into the Nets upsetting the Bucks, and yes, I am defining it as an upset, their Game 5 win to take a 3-2 series lead and arguably assure themselves a trip to the Eastern Conference Finals, I wanted to lay out what I can offer in regard to the piece in The Athletic or by The Athletic on the relationship between Luka Doncic and the Dallas Mavericks. For those not aware, The Athletic wrote a piece that suggests there is tension between Doncic, their young franchise star, 
and members of the front office, specifically a former high-stakes gambler and analytics wizard, Herlabus Volgaris, who now works for the Mavericks as Director of Quantitative Research and Development. It suggests that Volgaris has an outsized role in personnel decisions that has prompted resentment and discord within the organization, including with Doncic. The piece doesn't do much more than that. It contains a variety of little nuggets, but there's no big overall conclusion. The fact that Volgaris's contract is up this summer and there's no indication yet if the Mavs will extend him, and usually contract extensions in the NBA are worked out well in advance, and that Doncic has indicated he plans to sign an extension with Dallas when he's eligible next summer, kills the significance of the reported turmoil. It's interesting, but I don't know how meaningful. Jealousy, turf wars, and griping are part of practically every NBA front office. I just talked to a scout yesterday whose team is still in the playoffs and he was killing his own team. It's part and parcel with maybe every business, to be honest, but certainly when it comes to the NBA. It's a high-pressure, high-reward business. That the piece acknowledges Doncic intends to sign his max salary contract with the Mavs but then speculates that unless the team does a better job of putting talent around him, he could look to go elsewhere, also feels like an attempt to make this story bigger than it actually is, at least at the moment. And I'm going to stand by something with Doncic, as I would and I do with Giannis Antetokounmpo and a few other young stars. Don't tell me about what they need around them to go further in the playoffs. Not when I can look at their games and see clear places where they need to get better, things that they need to do better. And without them doing those things better, it's going to be awfully hard to put the requisite talent around them to win a championship. That's just the reality. Besides, Attempting to put more talent around a young star, that's pretty much the situation for every team with a young star in order to keep him happy. And it's generally not that a team has to put great talent around a player as much as they have to show the desire and ability to continue trying to acquiring the right talent. That's how OKC kept Kevin Durant in Oklahoma City as long as they did. It's why they traded James Harden for young talent and future picks. Because it was as much to say, however far we go, we can. Sam Presti, the GM, could always go to KD at the end of the season and say, okay, we didn't make it there, but these are the assets that we have in order to change up what we have. That, in a way, is what has the... Warriors a little bit stuck right now in trying to go on a quick timeline to make the most out of Steph Curry and Klay Thompson and Draymond Green before they add too many years to their calendar. They've got a couple of picks, but I don't know that those picks are going to turn into players that can win titles or play as part of a championship caliber team 
on the timeline necessary. So what happens is you take those picks, and fans often like to do this. Let's trade those picks and get veteran players. Okay, that's fine. And then you take your shot, and unless you make your shot at a championship, now you're stuck with an old, expensive team. And the rebuilding process, the process to getting back to being competitive again, is a much, much longer one. Full disclosure, by the way, on the Doncic story, I heard earlier this season that there were issues between Doncic and Coach Rick Carlisle, which surprised me not at all. Both men like to run the show. Both are supremely confident in their ability to do so successfully. I might have even mentioned it on this podcast. I didn't do anything with it beyond that because a source indicated that while there was some turbulence between the two, it was a byproduct of the team's slow start, losing 13 of their first 21 games and sitting in 13th place in the Western Conference. This, in a year, they were considered a dark horse to be a title contender, and Doncic was considered the preseason favorite to be MVP. All of that went away when they entered February as a 500 team. Now, I'm not suggesting that The Athletic should not have written the story. As I, was, as I said, it, it was interesting. And I didn't know about the friction with Volgaris, although does not surprise me at all. It makes sense. Doncic, the kind of player that he is, having the intuitive feel for the game, he doesn't want to hear about analytics. It's like someone telling Picasso, no, you need to use 43% more blue and only 13% green in order to paint a masterpiece. Luca's got a great feel for the game. This doesn't have a perfect feel, but he doesn't want somebody giving him diagrams and charts to tell him how he should play at any given time. And again, based on the article, Rick Carlisle, who is not one to take a lot of <laughs> insight or direction from outside influences, unless he has to, read the room, read that Vulgaris has Mark Cuban's ear, and decided to go with the flow. That would naturally put him at odds with Doncic as well. I also asked someone who knows Doncic's mindset about the piece and how much of it was accurate. And I was told bits and pieces. I was also told that owner Mark Cuban knows how Doncic feels. That was an element in the story that wasn't clear. It gave the impression Cuban either wasn't aware of how unhappy Doncic is or hadn't done anything about it. And that is not true. I was told Volgaris was taken off the road earlier this season, which means he was told he couldn't travel with the team. Cuban would have made that call, particularly considering how close he is with Volgaris. The mistake Cuban made is saying that the report was total BS. It's not total BS. There's some truth to it. He could have or should have simply said that every front office has its differences and disagreements, but that it's all for a common goal, to build a better team, and that there's nothing wrong with dissenting opinions. Now, The Athletic is going to devote itself to being on the lookout for anything that would show the story was not total BS. 
Cuban unnecessarily staked his credibility on a situation that clearly isn't perfect. And that's a credibility that already had been marred by John Wertheim's story about the sexual harassment that went unchecked in Maverick's front offices for years. Now, Doncic's mindset about signing an extension is going to be plumbed every time the Mavs have a bad patch next season. And keeping an eye on what happens to Volgaris this summer will be a priority for anyone covering the team, if not the league. Either way, if Volgaris is not re-signed or he is, it's going to be a story. I'm Louise Makshari of Catch Up with Louise Makshari. I could not be more thrilled to be telling you about the return of The White Lotus. It's streaming now with a Now Entertainment membership. I loved everything about the first series of the show, from the cast to the music. And it is just the perfect blend of mystery, comedy and drama. In, in my opinion, the finale of the last series was nothing short of a masterpiece. And now in season two, they're bringing us to Italy. Jennifer Coolidge is back and thank God for that. And this time she's joined by a new cast of characters. If you missed season one, I can't encourage you enough to catch up. You won't regret it. It's streaming now with a Now Entertainment membership. And you can stream the new season of the Emmy Award winning The White Lotus weekly on Now. Ah, now about the Nets and the Bucks in Game 5. We can start with Kevin Durant, who stared down every critic he's ever had. He's just a scorer. His triple-double featured 17 rebounds. He's not a playmaker. He also had 10 assists against only 3 turnovers and handled the ball at the top of the arc on almost every possession down the stretch. He played all 48 minutes. James Harden, meanwhile, played 46 minutes on a hamstring that as of yesterday had him doubtful, uh, and a hamstring that he clearly did not want to test, and had kept him out of all but the first minute of the entire series. The next time someone tries to convince me that there's a science behind minutes restrictions or that load management is vital for keeping players healthy, I'm going to have a hard time not laughing out loud. I can't think of anything more physically demanding than playing every minute of a playoff game, much less doing it with the activity required to score 49 points, grab 17 boards, and assist on 10 baskets by someone else, which is what Durant did. Never mind a guy with a suspect hamstring going 46 minutes in a playoff game. Now, Harden was not very active, making only one basket on a stunted drive and floater, rarely even attempting to dribble into the paint, and three of his points came on free throws. He was credited with eight assists, half of them courtesy of makes by Durant, and six rebounds, but that's about what anyone would get if they were on the floor for 46 minutes. The ball is going to bounce your way here and there. I just don't remember him skying or even leaping for a particular rebound. But all of this makes my point. Minutes are not created equal. How hard a player plays can determine a lot, if not everything. Okay, so rarely do we see such a stark difference between so-called superstars as we saw between KD and Giannis Antetokounmpo. Giannis's box score would suggest he was the Bucks' best player based on his 34 points, 12 rebounds, 2 of 4 threes, and 4 of 7 free throws, which are 
high efficient shooting percentages for him in those categories. I can't tell you who the Bucks' best player was. They were all sort of good. Drew Holiday started off strong. Brooke Lopez was just consistently solid, especially on defense. Pat Connaughton made a number of high-energy, clever plays off the bench. Giannis contributed, but I wouldn't say in a superstar way. Chris Middleton contributed, but I wouldn't say in an all-star way. No one stepped up to take this game by the throat for the Bucks, even when the Nets were collectively in their clutches with their feet dangling a few feet off the floor. KD gently set the team back down and then grabbed the game by the throat and closed it. Now, not to take anything away from KD, but players don't have this kind of performance without cooperation from the opposition. A scoring performance that big is usually an indicator that the opponent is okay with that player going off but wants to limit everyone else. Or there's confusion. The game that LeBron James had against the Detroit Pistons in the playoffs many years ago is always cited as his breakout game. What it does not take into account that Flip Saunders and the team were at odds at how they wanted to defend LeBron. And Rasheed Wallace was going in his direction and Flip was trying to get the rest of the team to go in his. They were a mess. And LeBron took full advantage of it. Kudos to him. But this idea that he beat that juggernaut of a Detroit team all by himself is not quite accurate. There was some turmoil, internal turmoil, that contributed to him having that opportunity. Back to KD. Even in a case where the opponent is okay with that player going off but wants to live in it, limit everyone else, they generally will give that player different looks just to make him think because thinking leads to slowing down and being more deliberate. I'm not sure what the Bucks' approach was. They had two guys elected to first-team all-defense NBA, Giannis and Drew, and never at any time did they get the assignment of guarding KD. That responsibility went to P.J. Tucker and Middleton. I haven't been able to identify their approach for a good part of this season. The Bucks made no noticeable defensive adjustments. They didn't trap KD. They didn't double-team him. They didn't deny him the ball once he gave it up. Though, granted, at 6'10", in a game being closely called, that's not easy to do. I just have to believe that if KD had to work harder to get the ball, it would have been harder for him to be as fresh as he was down the stretch, playing every minute. Nor did the Bucks recognize how or why they were able to build their early leads. They tried way too hard to attack Harden with ISOs in the second half and ran far too many ISOs in general in the fourth quarter. I listened to a good part of the first half on radio, play-by-play provided by the Nets broadcast team, Chris Carino and Tim Crapstraw, then went back and watched the entire game on TV. Carino and Capstraw were brutally honest about how jittery and out of sorts their team looked while everything seemed to be going Milwaukee's way. Which was the first indication that the Bucks might be in trouble in the big picture. Because, for the most part, 
they still allowed the Nets to remain within striking distance, never pushing the lead past 20 and only getting it to 17 once. In today's NBA, in a game being tightly called, that's very much within striking distance. But Capstraw, the Nets' color commentator and a former college coach, also noted something that played a significant part in the game. The fact that the Bucks picked up seven fouls in the first quarter, an indication that the officiating crew would not allow the game to be anywhere as physical as it was in games three and four. Game three was a particular slugfest, and Milwaukee was only called for a dozen fouls in that game. They were whistled for twice that many in game five. Every Milwaukee starter, other than Drew Holiday, was in foul trouble. Giannis actually fouled out in the final minute. Jeff Green was the only net in foul trouble, on the other hand, finishing with five. Physical games, games that are allowed to be physical, are far more taxing. Getting up and down the court is infinitely easier when each trip isn't capped with a wrestling match to get to the paint or get off a shot. More fouls also means more breaks in the action, which means more time to recover. I can still see this series going seven games. I can't see the Bucks winning it now. Not unless Harden has to go back on the shelf. Game five was there for them to take. The Nets staked them a lead. Nets coach Steve Nash had so little confidence in Mike James, he played him three minutes. Nicholas Claxton, two minutes. And Bruce Brown, who started, only played 13 minutes. Meanwhile, Nash kept his hamstrung point guard on the floor for 46. He essentially played a six-man rotation, one of those being Harden. If the Bucks can't manage to win in Brooklyn under those conditions... It's hard to imagine them ever winning there in this series. All right, that does it for this episode of On the Ball on the United WeCast Network. Please rate and, re- and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You know where we're going next. Yes, sir. Two Game 5s coming up. The Hawks at the Sixers and the Clippers at the Jazz. A lot of momentum swing as a result of Game 4 in both of those series. And we'll talk about where things stand after they have their Game 5s. In the meantime, as always, thanks for listening. Louise Makshari of Catch Up with Louise Makshari. I could not be more thrilled to be telling you about the return of The White Lotus. It's streaming now with a Now Entertainment membership. I loved everything about the first series of the show, from the cast to the music. And it is just the perfect blend of mystery, comedy and drama. In, in my opinion, the finale of the last series was nothing short of a masterpiece. And now in season two, they're bringing us to Italy. Jennifer Coolidge is back and thank God for that. And this time she's joined by a new cast of characters. If you missed season one, I can't encourage you enough to catch up. You won't regret it. It's streaming now with a Now Entertainment membership. And you can stream the new season of the Emmy Award winning The White Lotus weekly on Now.